Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and today I am excited to introduce the guest. We're going to talk about transforming grief and fear into love and grace. What does that mean in 2020? Well, we have a definite expert here today. She is a best-selling author, an international speaker, and a psychotherapist. She is the author of Living in the Shadow of the Too-Good Mother Archetype. Hopefully that's not a slight against our beloved June Cleaver. (laughs) She's the author of Letters to Freedom, and she has an upcoming shame-informed therapy, the art and architecture of reconstructing the authentic self. And a few months ago, if you guys missed, she was on an online event with Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, and others. They were discussing mental health and suicide prevention. So put your seatbelt on. We are in for a ride this hour. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Patty Ashley. Welcome, Patty. Hi, Hamza. Th- thanks for that introduction. I'm, um, yeah, I am. It is about June Cleaver, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, and my book is out. It's no longer upcoming. It came out last Tuesday, June. Uh, July, oh. Yeah, what day? It's July 7th, the shame book. Yeah, so thanks for awesome. having me on the show. Yes, yes, um, indeed, indeed. And so, yeah, let's let's jump right into it. Uh, before we get started, I, I did want to give a shout out to my old fifth grade teacher. I don't know where she is in the world today, uh, Miss Boransky. But the question I have for you is, are they in fifth grade or elementary school, are they going to continue to teach social studies? Because in 2020, at least in my social studies class, we were all on one accord in this country. And in 2020, it seems like we have, we're going back to the fiefdoms. And if we have fiefdoms, I think we're going to have more transforming fear. And I'd like to get your take on how we can transform our current state culturally. Oh, yeah. It's definitely going down in history books. I, I you know, imagine that, you know, what it's going to be like. I mean, my mom was born in 1914, and I mm. think was it 1918 was the flu, um, mm-hmm. the big flu epidemic. So I wish my mom and my grandma were still around because my grandmother then had lived through World War One, World War Two, and the flu. And, you know, we really haven't seen this kind of unprecedented, you know, time in – in a while. And so, yeah, it's definitely waking people up and making people, um, well, they're reactive. And hopefully my, my hope is, and, and my eternal optimism is people will start going inward and really searching for what it is, you know, that's really important and what they value instead of um, we've kind of been living in a, you know, bigger, better, faster um, kind of lifestyle, and of course that's all been put slowed down a little bit. Um, <laughs> so the slowing down, and in the grief, because we're all in collective grief right now. There's all there's a letting go of what's familiar. Um, everything's changing, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and there's a lot of not knowing, and that creates a lot of fear. And fear often creates reactive behaviors that aren't necessarily mm-hmm. productive. So. Yeah, you you said something really important that I want to really drive home about wishing that you could speak with your mother or grandmother. And these intergenerational relationships are, I think, very imperative. I think that is one takeaway for 2020. For instance, I had seen a a picture online, and it was a picture of 1918. And they had – it was – so similar in that in the fall and winter season of 1917 and 1918, they had the pandemic. And once the weather started getting warm, you know, people started getting antsy. And then that summer, you know, they started coming out. They started going out the house. And then that summer, we actually won World War I. And to celebrate, people went out in droves. And they say that that was the greatest mishap because more people died in that wave when they went out to celebrate than those that had stayed in the house previously. Mm, interesting. That doesn't yeah. sound familiar, does it? 
Yeah, I mean, those pictures of all the masks back then, it is. It's it's interesting to think, you know, we're living that only on a much grander scale as well. So it's mm-hmm. hard now for everybody. Yeah, to be topical, to stay with the intergenerational relationships, one of the top movies or top TV shows on Netflix was, was or is Dark. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. Have you seen what Dark? What is it? Dark? Yeah, it's called Dark, and they did exactly like what happened in the 80s where in Germany there was, I forget the name of the cartoon, but an American company had bought the licensing and it became the Smurfs. And so Dark was out, it's a German show, was out in 2017 for three seasons, and they just brought it to the States. They, they, they dubbed it and what have you, and it's phenomenal. And what happens, it's, it's along the lines of what we're talking about where something happens that shakes everyone up and then mm. you're trying to go back and forth through intergenerational relationships, be it you or others, and you're trying to fix those, but you're doomed to repeat the history if you don't know about it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's on Netflix. Yeah. It's on Netflix. Yeah. For oh my sure. Gosh, thank you so much. I've just finished up my shows that I've been watching. That sounds like I'd really be interested in that because it is. I mean, they say we're carrying um, 14 generations of ancestral trauma in our DNA, and it's all unconscious, some of the fear responses. You know, I think about my mom had a lot of anxiety, and when we're talking, I was just thinking, um, you know, what it must have been like for her to be four and have to wear the mask. And, you know, because I have grandchildren now, and my grandchildren are um, eight, seven, and um, <laughs> sorry, three. Um, three and a half, so I guess my youngest one is close to the age my mom was when that was happening. And, you know, how do kids understand that? Um, You know, it's got to be scary. There's this virus that we can't see that we're all afraid of, and we have to wear this mask, and we can't see each other's faces, and we communicate so much through our facial, facial gestures, and human touch is so important. So, you know, um... You know, I just wonder how it's going to affect um, future generate. You know, so that yeah, this intergenerational piece of healing old wounds, but we know a lot more now than we did then. Hopefully, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that we can do things different. But I don't know. Families are still, you know, it's hard enough to be a parent before the pandemic, and now it's it's even more intense. I think the heat's been turned up quite a bit because. We haven't learned really until the mid-20th century what children need to develop emotionally, optimally develop their emotional, social, emotional self. Prior to that, we did all the shame-based, stop crying before I give you something to cry about, you should be ashamed of yourself, you know, all the old beliefs um, that I dug up in Alice Miller's work where she talked about, you know, how parents were supposed to break the will of the child before they were old enough to remember and beat the devil out of them and you know, making kids like little servants to the master. And so in the mid-20th century, we started researching. You know, I always say we're the only species that has to research ourselves to understand how to get along with each other. And we realized, well, that was really wrong. You know, we should do it different. So parents started reading these books on how to do it different. And my work, that's how The Shadow of the Two Good Mother happened, was I was parenting in the 80s. And uh, my peers were all reading all these books, and I was teaching parent education for a pediatric group. And there was this common phenomenon almost of the more books I read, the worse I feel because I keep repeating these old patterns. And that's when I realized that, you know, these, uh, these old patterns from our families that came down so many generations that really don't serve us are in our are in our biology, and we have to really stop and work with, well, what's the new story? What do I want to do different? It's never been written before. Mm. So that's what I'm hoping for, that people start asking those questions. And, you know, how can we learn to pay more attention to our social-emotional needs and, you know, and really respect one another and, you know, we all talk about that, you know, living in peace and harmony, but, man, we're far from that, aren't we? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And just one more plug for the TV show Dark. I just – I'm having a little grief because I just finished it last night. So. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. I know. 
like, but one of the takeaways uh, from the show was that there's three stages that we go through in life. And the first stage is the loss of naivete. The second is the loss of innocence. And then ultimately it's the loss of life. And so when, as you were talking about the children, you know, they could be losing that naivete and innocence at the same time, but it Mm -hmm. just seems like that has to be part of that natural progress. Like you can't just say, hey, you're two years old and this is how the world works, or can you? No, you can. And I think that's what's important about understanding developmentally. Kids don't think the same way as adults. and, and it isn't until they're like seven or eight, and we learned this from um, Jean Piaget, who researched cognitive development, and it was brilliant because we were treating kids like little adults back in the, you know, in the old antiquated, you know, child-rearing beliefs, and kids are like sponges. They absorb everything. So if you make a joke, like if you don't settle down, I'm going to lock you in the trunk, and the kid is five years old, that's terrifying because they don't know that that's just a joke. And or, you know, or you'll never amount to anything, you know, those kind of messages I have in my book, they're called Not Enough Messages. I ask people um, to tell me, you know, some of the things they heard as children, and I ended up with pages and pages and pages of all these things they heard, and we take them into our body memory, and they, they, like Bruce Lipton says, by the time then we turn seven or eight, it's all gone unconscious and we're like in a hypnotic trance. And so we're living out all the things that little sponge absorbed. So in talking about the pandemic to kids, we have to be aware of what's happening developmentally for them. And I talk about Erickson's stages of psychosocial development in my new book, you know, and just looking at the stages of what, children need at different ages, and that helps kind of connect the dots. Um, And then, you know, fast forward to adolescence, I think we've overindulged our adolescence. You know, there are some cultures that, you know, they do rituals, you know, and and they, you know, once a, a child is a teen, man, you're out on your own. You leave the tribe. You go, you know. That's what I think you were talking about, the loss of, was it the loss of innocence? And um, and I think we've prolonged that, which has a lot to do with the two good mother archetype because moms who want to give their kids everything that they didn't have growing up, they overindulge and, you know, they overgive and, and they get their identity from being a mom and then they don't want to let go. And we, in, in one of the chapters in my first book, Shadow of the Two Good Mothers, called Loving and Letting Go because it's such an important part of adolescence. So, yeah, it really helps to know developmentally where our kids are in terms of talking about this pandemic and, and give them, talk to them about it, talk to, and let them feel their feelings. My daughter and I did a course. My daughter's 39, and she's a school psychologist, and she has her two little ones. And we've been doing a program called Moms in Real Life, and we did a course, an online course, and it's, good because, you know, I have the wisdom that I know from my research and my years, but she's right now in the thick of it, right? And she's, and so her and I together, we did a lot of videos talking about those different things. And so she shares, you know, developmentally what, you know, we talk about what is what to say at what age, you know, how all feelings are okay, but all behavior isn't. So how do you validate your kid's feelings? Um, you know, all the new stuff that we need to learn that we didn't know prior to the mid 20th century and also how we as parents do our own work instead of trying to just give our kids everything we didn't have. It's a huge uh, ordeal. And uh, one of the hot news topics is as it relates to children is um, finding out, and, you know, we didn't find out until this year, you know, the kids before you had to, you know, have these paternal or parenting locks on access to to their electronics and playing games. And when they first had to stay home, it was like, great. Oh my goodness. I get to play these games all day. And then we found that they really need that human interaction with their fellow kids to kind of play and touch and all this other things. And now, you know, we're about to go into that again. So I guess my first question, just to kind of give an overview is if you can talk about the five stages of grief 
And then the second part of that question is, what type of conversation should we have with children because the country is divided in the next couple of weeks of sending them to school versus homeschooling them? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, that's a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> there's a lot in that. So let's take one at a time. Uh, he's asked me first the stages of grief, right? Is yeah, that- yeah. Well, and Kubler Ross came up with um, with her brilliant research on grief because, again, the old school talked us out of our feelings, and we were supposed to hurry up and get on with life and not feel, you know. And she, working with people who were dying, saw that people go through all kinds of emotions, and, and the five main pieces of grief is um, denial, which is like a shock when we um, – um, you know, like in a car accident, we can't necessarily feel the pain at the time because our body goes into shock. It's the same thing with our emotional pain. And then the next one is bargaining where, you know, that's when we question, you know, did I do something wrong? Could I have done something else? Why didn't I call him enough? Why, you know, is there something I could have done? That's the bargaining. And then there's the anger. And this is such a misunderstood emotion because, you know, we – haven't in the past separated the feeling from the behavior. And, I, and one of my favorite favorite lines is, all feelings are okay, but all behavior isn't. So we can, anger energizes us. Anger helps us distance. Anger helps us recognize what we feel out of control of in our lives and what we want and what we don't want. So the feeling of anger itself is actually productive, but we haven't really learned that. And we've been trying, we've been talked out of our anger because, you know, when we act out, in anger and we maybe hurt ourselves or somebody else, that behavior is not okay, but the anger itself needs to have a healthy, um, a healthy outlet, a healthy container, and we need to give ourselves permission for that. So it's hard to give ourselves permission to be angry at somebody for dying or to be angry. Um, it's kind of easy to be angry at the coronavirus. I think we all are, but, um, you know, to feel that that's part of grief, and that's a part that's a place where a lot of people get stuck. And then it's depression, and we go into deep, deep, deep sadness. And we don't really like to be sad in our country. We like to be happy. And so I, Carl Jung says what we resist persists and often grows stronger. And so when we try not to be sad and depressed, it, it can actually make it worse. And I really, my theory is that's the root of a lot of the depression and hopelessness right now in the young kids and in all ages. But, you know, there's so much hopelessness in the, in youth, you know, because they're feeling sad. There's an existential sadness, especially now, going on. But there was before COVID with all the school shootings and all the, you know, school systems are pretty messed up before the pandemic. And now they're having to clean up. They're trying to, oh, and that gets to your other question. But, um, you know, depression also is part of grief. You know, my one of my instructors in one of my first graduate courses said all depression is unresolved grief. And that was a huge aha for me because I'd lost my father when I was a kid, and I thought, oh, well, that makes sense. You know, what is unresolved grief? So that's when I went back and, and started doing grief work, you know, which is really feeling all those feelings I just described. So that's grief. And then ex- Acceptance is the fifth one, and they're not linear. They um, we move in and out of them, and grief takes has its own time. You know, um, different people grieve for different amounts of time, and we really can't and should not put a time on it because it's it's everyone's individual process. Mm-hmm. Okay, what was the other question? Yeah. <laughs> was, sure. No, thanks for covering that because I think that gives us a framework. And as the, the debate goes on of should we send the kids back to school, and, and if we do, what kind of conversation do we have with them about death, dying, and grief if they do go back to school and, and, and they may not see their best friend, you know, next semester? Oh, right, right. You know, it's huge. I'm actually – my one daughter's a school psychologist and the other one's a high school teacher, and I will tell you I'm terrified I am terrified of for them and my children. I think this is it's just not okay. I mean, what they've came up with here in Denver is this whole plan. If one child gets, you know, COVID, then, you know, two weeks 
of quarantine for all the people, the students and teachers that that child had been around. And then if there's, you know, four cases, then, you know, that's multiplied by four, whatever. And to me, it's just, a, it's a setup for disaster. I, mm-hmm. I, even though here we are, you know, and we need social connections. So we're ca- kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because how do we have social interactions with, how do children, and they don't understand why we can't, you know, wrestle and tumble around on the playground with our friends. Um, Why can't we give our friends a hug? Why do we have to wear this mask? I mean, it's so much for these kiddos to take in and to understand. And then when, in, in answer to your question, what if a classmate dies? I mean, that is terrifying, you know, or even goes to the hospital and is on a respirator and really sick for a long time. That means I could get it. That means... You know, what does that mean? And the other thing is kids don't understand the permanence of death until about seven or eight, that same time frame that Piaget discovered. And so they don't really even understand that when somebody dies that they're gone forever. It's kind of like, you know, in the in, that's why movies and, and the cartoons and TV, you know, are, are real to them. And in like a cartoon, you know, the character gets you know, knocked down and then bounces back up. So there's no, there's no clear thinking about what death is. And even after seven or eight, we don't really understand. I mean, who does really? Don't we all want to know what happens after we die and why? Why is it? And it just is. You know, what I learned in my lifelong search is it's a mystery. We're not supposed to know. We're supposed to be here now. But it's really scary for kids. And so parents and teachers need to have these conversations, and that's the other thing we do wrong, we've done wrong for so long, is we try not to talk about things with kids that are hard because we don't want to upset them. And so we try and act as if we try and make things, uh, we smooth things over as best we can. And we're in a situation that isn't so easy to smooth over anymore. And so to be able to enter into conversations where we have to tolerate grief and we have to tolerate discomfort, that's so new for many of us, if not all or most. Um, And I think that's the work that the adults have to do. I think the kids can figure it out. The kids are resilient. Kids are very resilient. They're very adaptable. It's the grown-ups that have to kind of grow up a little bit, you know, and learn that, that this is what children need developmentally and we all have to learn how to tolerate this not feel good and this death and dying um, together. And we have to have real yep. conversations. We want to be age appropriate, of course, and not scare kids. But, you know, I've seen so many stories of parents just, you know, trying not to talk to kids about things because they think it will upset them, but it upsets them even more because they're so intuitive. They have like little antennae and they say, well, I want to understand what's going on. Why won't mom and dad tell me? Explain it. And then mom yeah, and dad, no. oh, just go, you know, just go play. We got this. Don't worry. You know, well, right. they want to know something. Right. And and I was kind of like chagrined because she said, here in the States, we don't grow up. And as you, that's why I wanted you to, or we grow up later than the rest of the world. And as you were explaining the five stages of grief, you know, I was going through each one and I think I'm going to put a time stamp on this. This is actually Wednesday, July 15th, 2020. And the E for acceptance for a lot of grown, quote, unquote, grown children, uh, myself a little bit is in there too, so I'm not pointing a finger, but it's going to be acceptance that this is really happening this year because pro sports is trying to come back, but we're going to get the acceptance that it's not coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I put the timestamp, and then we'll go through those five stages all over again. Exactly. Yeah, we will. And I, I, I that's what I'm hearing. It's going to get worse again. And um, it's yeah, we're in for the long haul here. And I think the more we can come together with respect and kindness and compassion. Um, because we can't, we can't take this away. We obviously, you know, there's no quick fix here. We like, we, we in this country, we like quick fixes. We like to just fix things. And guess what? <laughs> you know, this is this is tough. These are some tough times. I did want to ask you about the online event with Marianne Williamson and Deepak Chopra and others, because you were talking about 
mental health and suicide prevention. And that's another thing that we found is that, you know, like you said, prior to uh, staying in place and, and the pandemic, they, uh, we, a lot of people were tethered to their phones, so you weren't having that social interaction. And then you're forced to stay in the home. And if you're like most people here in Atlanta, it's a, very, it's a single city. And so for the first time, a lot of those people, you can't, there's no excuse to go outside and you're alone with your thoughts. And we thought at the movies, they said silence was golden. And so uh, you're dealing with greater mental health and suicide prevention issues. Uh, how are you addressing that overall? Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, I mean, in the movie that they did, uh, Deepak Chopra and Michelle Pascal and Gabriella um, was about suicide prevention because their movement, their Never Alone movement, is really about um, you know, getting into the schools because there's so much depression. The suicide rate, I think it's the second highest in that age group, and that's next to accidents. Um, that's just appalling. Kid, I have a psychiatrist friend, and she was telling me yesterday she has nine and 11-year-old kids this week that she's had to hospitalize because they're having suicidal thoughts. And wow. Right? I know. It's like... So this movie, this movement is was so important, and this was all before COVID happened, and we were having all the school shootings and, you know, just a lot of hopelessness. That's what I was saying earlier about the existential depression, these kiddos that can't really shake it, but there's nobody that can help them because, again, everybody's trying to talk them out of it. Now, come on, go out and play ball, you know, get over it. They're going, well, tell me about that. What does it feel like to be sad? What's you know, that's what I do as a therapist, right? I'm like, give people permission to just explore what's going on. And so now we have this experience that, like we were just talking about, do kids go back to school? Do they online? What about the social interaction? All that stuff. And so, yes, there's been an, a tremendous increase in, um, you know, mental health concerns. I think the hotlines were... You know, I think 800 and some percent when I a month or so ago when I looked at that increase in calls, domestic violence. Again, this is what I'm saying. Parents haven't learned how to regulate their own discomfort and create safe spaces for their kiddos because this is all so new. So again, it was it was hard before the pandemic, and now you know I really encourage people, and that's why. I'm grateful that I get to do this work. I just wish I could get, you know, I could help. I could, like, ex help people get it because more people, you know, really get it because it's it's so important. Um, when, we, when we don't treat, when we don't understand what children need to develop optimally, we're just can't, we just continue to repeat these old patterns that, are dysfunctional and lead to things like suicide and depression and domestic violence. We have to pay attention to our inner world and it's brand new and it's scary and it's dark. I can't wait to watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got another guy. We got a convert. <laughs> I was so sad when it was over last night. <laughs> I really was. <laughs> I, I can't remember the quote by Carl Jung, but I love it. It's it, it's like we can't we can't find the light by the light. We and this is so not right the quote, but you know we have to enter the darkness. It's a hero's journey. You know, like Joseph Campbell talked about going entering the cave and the, facing our enemies and finding our allies and really. You know, you know all the all the screenplays are a hero's journey for the most part. Good ones. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and no, no, you, you wouldn't watch a movie if it just started, oh, I'm born and my life is happy and I'm just having a great life and then I die. You know, that's not what we do here. And but but we're, we for some reason, we got this idea that we're supposed to be able to do that. And these kids are much smarter than that. And they're going, what in the way? What about this feeling that's coming up for me? Where are the big people who can witness that and help me understand that and help me deepen into what I'm experiencing because that's how we get to the joy part, believe it or not. It, it, it seems, 
you know, one thing Deepak Chopra, I do know this quote, he says, people think that the shadow is the opposite of love, but actually it is the way to love. Mm. And the shadow is these parts of ourselves that go in the dark, the parts that we think are bad and they go underground, and we don't want to look at them. And so we act out certain behaviors or stories in order to get love, feel love, whatever. Um, But we got to go into the darkness in order to really find this true joy. It's hard for people to get that. So uh, I'm going to promise that this will be the last dark reference. (laughs) 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 So I want to ask you, how do you, how, were you able to travel to the different worlds? Because as I listen to you speak, you sound, you remind me of Dr. Brian Weiss, where he was classically trained, but a lot of the stuff that he talks about, you know, in his later years and what you're talking about now, there was actually once upon a time two camps where you didn't really talk about shadow self in a world as a licensed psychotherapist. So how did you navigate those two worlds and bring them together? That's a really, really, really good question because um, I was a single mom for a long time. And so I I kind of, years ago, kind of kept it kind of like my secret life over here. (laughs) Like, you know, I I don't know how to integrate it, but it's really important to me. And the reason my spirituality is important to me is because my father died when I was 11 and I was raised Catholic and told that he was in heaven and I went back to sixth grade, and I, I, I just thought, this is, first of all, why, doesn't, why don't any of the big people want to talk to me about this horrendous thing that's just happened in our family? Why is it we'll just go back to normal next week? And why is my mother crying in her bedroom and drinking too much and not talking to me? And where is this God who took my dad? And why can't I go there? And what's happening? I I couldn't commit suicide because in the Catholic Church you're taught you go to hell if you kill yourself. So I thought, well, I'm not going to find him there because I'm sure he's in heaven. So I went on a lifelong spiritual quest to, you know, there was a time when I actually almost was an atheist. I didn't believe in anything. You know, I left the Catholic Church a long time ago because of way too many people that I know who were, you know, sexually abused by priests. And, you know, I've always been curious. I've just always been a really curious person. So I read a book um, when I was about 30 called The Nature of Personal Reality by Jane Roberts. And it was all about how we create our own reality, and it made the most sense to me. And then I continued just studying, studying, I, all the great people. Marion Williamson is one of my f- most favorite people. Um, I've just spent a lot of time studying from all these amazing teachers and, um, and psychics and intuitives and astrologers and just my curiosity. And so I, I put it all together, and now I'm kind of out of the closet. And, um, you know, I, I incorporate it because I think we have to right now. We're just in a time where... You know, what I found in my field, I think we have to combine all the areas, our emotional self, our physical self, our mental self, and our spiritual self. And we can't, a lot of people want to pick one over the other. And so in the field of psychology, I think a lot of times it's gone way too much into the mental and into the left brain where we really know now that this um, the right brain development in early childhood and attachment is where we set up the, the good neural connections that say we're emotionally safe and we're lovable and that carries us through life. But as I was saying, we have all these earlier um, tapes that tell us all these not enough messages that we grow up and absorb. And for me, the spiritual piece is we humans have a lot to learn. And so, yeah, we can analyze it with all of the research, and that now we have brain research, which I think is super cool because the brain research is supporting some of the spiritual teachers now. You know, we know that meditation actually, you know, increases um, the positive connections in our brain. And so people are going, oh, that's good. I can believe that now. <laughs> you know, I have to have the research again to prove it. But, you know, these, these spiritual teachers have a lot of wisdom, if you go back, and that's one of the things in my course that I wrote, one of the courses that I have on 
my learning site is go in, not out, you know, you think about the mystics in the Dark Ages like Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, they had no control over the external world, and that's when they went inward. And that's when they did this deeper work and where they connected to something bigger and greater than themselves. But religion has kind of massacred it and made it all about external power and control and how much the church can tell people what to do. It's not about going in. So I think that this time of going in and really having to look inside ourselves is a spiritual practice. And it can't be separate, though, from all the other, the other four realms because, you know, we have a lot of spiritual bypassing here in Boulder, Colorado, where people, you know, think that they can meditate and they're good, you know, or they can go to a shaman, you know, and, you know, have some sage burning and, and that'll take care of it, <laughs> you know. And I believe in all that stuff. I think it's, it's wonderful. But let's not forget the other three parts, the mental and the physical and the, um, what's the other one? Mental, emotional. So, yeah, I've kind of put it all together, and I can't, like, keep it separate because I just, I, you know, really, seriously, I mean, don't we all ask those bigger questions, especially during grief? You know, what's it all about? Why are we here? <laughs> you know, who am I? You know, and yeah. those are spiritual questions, I think. Absolutely. And it sounds like in putting them all together, was that the uh, was that the foundation for establishing the authenticity architecture model? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, what I learned about shame and the not enoughness from, you know, my research with moms not feeling good enough and, and then Brene Brown's work coming out, which I love her and, Um, I was like, oh, this shame, 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 shame. Well, what's the opposite of shame? And that's, you know, I think it's so important in writing a new story of who, what we want our lives to be as opposed to the false self that we've put on. And so I thought, well, it's it's authenticity. And really my work is helping people excavate these parts of themselves that may have been hidden for a long time because the big people told them certain things that weren't true and then reconstructing a sense of a, of, a, of an off, more authentic life. And that's where we feel, you know, that's when we're aligned, like Joseph Campbell said, you know, follow your bliss. Um, you know, we're aligned with our, it feels, there's a feeling that feels better when we're really living true to ourselves. But most of us have been talked out of that. And so mm-hmm. that's what authenticity architecture is, is like helping people reconnect and reconstruct pieces that may have, you know, gotten lost along the way. And when you talk about the authentic self, what I want to get your take on, um, again, what we're used to with being tethered to technology, because when they, when we're first introduced, you know, it sounds great, kind of like the facts, whenever we get it, <laughs> get the, I'm telling my age now, right? So whenever we use the facts, oh, that's going to be the end all, but then we use, killed more trees because of it. And with technology, we're like, oh, wow, we'll be instant access. But when you talk about the shame, um, some of the research is the, the high uh, mortality with suicide prevention or actually doing it is because they're comparing themselves to maybe inauthentic lives that they're comparing themselves to on, on these social media sites. Uh, absolutely. You know, if you go back to, you know, um, like our Native Americans, <laughs> you know, uh, there. Here I live in in Colorado, and there's um, outside of. Um, am I trying to say what Mesa Verde? Mesa Verde, you know, is this these Native American ruins, and what they say is that these people didn't waste anything. I mean, they even used their waste, literal body waste, to build walls. You know, they knew every plant and its medicinal value. And they lived cooperatively in community and connection. And nobody knows what happens to them, you know, happened to them. You know, theory, theories, there's lots of theories, but one of them could be, um, you know, we look at the power and the greed and, you know, bigger, better, faster, 
and people don't respect the earth. I mean, I heard Jane Goodall the other day on Jimmy Fallon, you know, when he said, what, what do you think has caused this? And he said, it's because we have to respect nature. And when we don't respect nature, it, it, this is what happens. And so, yes, you know, when the greed and the, the corporate greed and the wanting more and bigger and better let, doesn't respect the earth and one another, yeah, not so good things happen. But we all like our stuff, you know. We all like our fancy cars and our, co- our comfortable houses. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, yeah, I, I think about – you know, how many people are hungry and homeless. And I think about all the corporate money, all the things that people of wealth are spending money on, and and they could feed the entire world. And, you know, all share it a little bit. (laughs) And it seems simple in my mind, but obviously it's, yeah, it's this, it's a disconnect. And I think it's that disconnect from self that we've learned back in the day in the survival, you know, of trying to, you know, not get killed and eaten and, and lifespans were shorter and all this old belief systems. And we're just, we have a lot to clean up, honestly, right, on the planet. <laughs> a lot. Well, I, I, th- yeah. I, thought it was, I thought it was beautiful and scary at the same time when I look at um, mid to late March and April when you can look across the world and you see places like Venice and the water was crystal clear and you saw places like India that have so much smog and they, they could actually see and they hadn't seen for generations. And the fear was like the, the earth is going to be fine even if we're not here. Oh, absolutely. The earth will be fine. We'll be extinct. And Deepak Chopra, I, he keeps saying that. I listen, you know, he's live several times a day now on Facebook and he keeps using that word, you know, we're all going to be extinct. But the the earth will the earth will survive, but we won't. And I think that's really a wake up call, isn't it? I mean, we don't think that could happen, but it could. It really could. And I hate to be dark, speaking of dark, but you know, I, <laughs> believe me, I am an optimist, and I think if people wake up and really pay attention, and be of service and come together, we can clean this up and it can be a whole different world. That's my hope. Um, but if we don't, you know, it's, it's a dark road. It is. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you because over this time we've been talking, uh, at least for the most part, working with individuals, but you also work with couples, families, and you do group counseling. Um, you've worked in mental health agencies, psychiatric hospitals, you've done private practice settings. How does it work if everyone has, like you said, with Bruce Lipton and, and others, we're dealing with a subconscious individually that you're trying to un, un, unwrap. How do you do that in a group setting? Oh, I love doing groups. I did groups um, based on my book with moms for years and I, because I learned that you can't do this work from the neck up. You can't do it just in the mental realm. You have to go into the sensory body, emotional um, realm, and you can do that through all kinds of experience. And I had a degree in early childhood, one of my, one of my other degrees, and so it was easy for me to do the experiential um, activities in groups. And so I do, we do like creative arts, we do movement, we work with clay, we do rituals, you know, and people come away from those weekend retreats feeling, feeling, feeling different you know, feeling transformed because, you know, and also they, and the, the good part about groups is that you realize you're not alone. And I think that's the thing, especially with what my work with women as mothers is, I can't tell you, probably thousands and thousands of women now have come into my door with me one-on-one and, and said almost the same thing. You know, I don't understand why so-and-so has got this parenting thing all figured out. You know, I don't know why she can do it and I can't. And I'm like, well, guess what? <laughs> You're one of thousands who have said the exact same thing to me, so I don't think they've got it down either. But they don't want to talk about it because of shame. And because, you know, so when we're in a group, we realize we're not alone. We're never alone. We, we're all, and we, and so I think my work with shame is really demystifying that 
for people, you know, started with moms, but now for for everyone is to just demystify this personalized idea of shame and really go, no, let's look at this, all the stuff that you and I have been talking about tonight. You know, I, I really, we get knee deep into it, like these old belief systems and the not enough messages and, you know, how, you know, 14 generations of DNA and, and how we can do this. We, you know, we can change DNA, but it requires a willingness to restory into something that's it's a story that's never been written before which i think is the exciting part right here I, after my dark dark darkness you know the exciting part is we get to write a new story and that's my hope again for the world is that we write a better story mm-hmm. we don't want to keep repeating this cuz it hadn't been working real well for us and you know, we, but it's never been written before, so that's why people get so lost because they're like, I'm trying to do it different what the book says, but I keep doing what my parents did, and then I don't know, and then I get frustrated. And, you know, so to demystify that that's because our DNA hasn't really had a story of how to do it right yet. Mm. That's hard, and yet it's also really hopeful because mm-hmm. we can do it. It's like a blank canvas. What do you want, it, what do you want on it? I'm for love and kindness. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I'm for a little bit of that and respect. Love it. Yes, yes, indeed. And and I want, but I want to ask you. I want to ask you about uh, a parallel, and again, another shout out to uh, the 9/11 babies. You know, when 9/11 happened, everybody's like, "Oh my goodness, we need to change." And hence, the 9/11 babies came, right? <laughs> you let people in front of you and all that, but. You know, around mid or the summer of 2002, people kind of went back to their old programs. And so what do you have to say about or what's your opinion of, yeah, oh, my goodness, 2020. But we're in like 2021 reminiscent about 2020, and we're back to our old patterns. Can we break those patterns when we don't, we don't have that sense of uh, survival? Well, yeah, that's a really good point because we do. Our, our um, unconscious usually takes over and, you know, we default back to what's familiar. You know, when I first heard, when all this happened and we first got ready to go into lockdown in March, you know, a friend of mine who works at the hospital said, yeah, this is probably going to be until June. And I thought, oh, my God, we got to do this till June? And this was March, right? And it was like... Oh, it's going to be July. I wonder if it's going to be over by my birthday, my book launch. Oh, oh, it's going to be the fall. Oh, it's going to be next year. Oh, it could be two, three years. And, you know, intuitively I thought, you know what, that might be the two by four that we all need. I hate to say it, but, you know, if it did end quickly, I think we would go back to what you said. We would just like – like somebody said to me once in an interview a while back at the beginning, it's like, don't you think it's going to be like, you know, people set their New Year's resolutions, you know, and they're all great in January, and then come February, March, they're all back to their old patterns. And I thought that was a good question, very similar to yours right now. And so I guess that's kind of my, my the reason I'm like digging my heels in for the long haul right now in hopes that this, that's how this paradigm shift, I think it's a real paradigm shift. It's a, transform, it's a transformation on the planet. Like I said, it could go either way, extinction, or we can create something better. And I don't think we would really pay this close attention if it was over quickly. And we still may not, even if it's two or three years, you know, because people get to choose. But I guess that's my – maybe that's my rationalization for being okay with the fact that this could be a few years. <laughs> okay. But I do believe that. I think, well, okay, you know, we're really going to have to live with this for a while and ask those bigger questions for a while. Did I just hear that your book just passed, but did your birthday just pass also? I, it was. So, yeah, my book came out on July 7th and my birthday was July 8th, but the story I tell everybody <laughs> Is July 7th was my parents, would have been my parents' 75th anniversary, and my mom was having a C-section and wanted me to be born on that day, but the hospital was full. So I like to celebrate July 7th as well as my birthday, so it's super fun that the book came out on that day, which would have been my parents' 75th anniversary. And then I got to just enjoy a hike on my birthday and dinner with some friends. So it was a, it was a good, 
The good week. That's why I knew I liked you, Patty, because we had the same, not you and I, you, I, you, me, and my twin sister, we all had the same conversation that it would be over by our birthday. Mine is actually on Sunday. And so we were like, yeah, (laughs) you're like, cancer, by the time my birthday, it's going to be over. (laughs) I know, right by my birthday. Please see by my birthday. You're cancer, yeah. We're cancer, see, we got... Heart. Cancers love home and family and heart. And um, so you have a twin who's a cancer. How fun is that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But as you were, as you were uh, un- unwrapping that, it kind of went, it went back to the conversation of children. And as, as you were talking about in the States, right, we're allowed to be children a lot longer. That could be the argument as to how we've responded to what's happening as opposed to other countries. And so if, if it were, sit down and take your, you know, old reference, take your castor oil in March, like, hey, it was going to happen all year, people wouldn't know how to react. So you had to tell people, okay, two weeks, okay, every month. And in fact, I believe it was the governor of New York that said that, like, hey, we were only supposed to say in two-week increments because people can't handle if we told them it was going to be a year or longer. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's it's almost back to normal here, it seems, in terms of the traffic and, the you know, back to the pollution again. Like you were saying, everything was so nice to see the clear sky and the clear water. It would be really mm-hmm. nice to figure out a way to do that um, overall, which I don't know. I mean, I do like travel too. I like my car. I like my airplane. You know, um, we got a lot of things to figure out, I think, and give ourselves permission to be curious and step into what is the new story. I think that's the important part. Mm-hmm. Something that's never been done before. And one good takeaway from the past couple of months, like you said, when people were home, a lot of people caught up on TV shows, movies, but a lot of people read. And so now we have the opportunity to know more about shame-informed therapy, the art of architecture and reconstructing the authentic self. So how could they get in, get that book, and how could they get in touch with you? I know you have a Facebook deal you do also. Yeah, and everything's on my website, which is pattyashley.com, and I spell my name with an I, so P-A-T-T-I-A-S-H-L-E-Y. Um, so there's links to all the books, all three of the books, and there's links to my, I have some online courses going on. And every Friday at 11 on my Dr. Patty Ashley Facebook page, I talk about various topics from each of the books. Of course, right now I'm, I'm knee deep in the shame book because it was just released. Mm-hmm. And I do do online coaching, authenticity architecture coaching. Um, there's a link to sign up for those sessions as well. I can't believe I got that all on one website. But I did. <laughs> Where there's a will, right? Uh, no, <laughs> exactly. And that that actually leads me to my last question because uh, because of what's happening in the response, especially uh, after uh, what was it, Harvard and MIT were just granted to. I mean, the foreign students they don't have to get deported, right? Because the school's going to be online. What is, what is, what's your takeaway from doing the online counseling versus in-person? Oh, gosh, it's like our conversation earlier about kids going to school and not going to school because it's both and. I mean, I'm so grateful that it's available and I can do it. Um, and I was even saying to I have a couple of clients who work for the broadband companies, I'm like, you guys cannot let broadband crash because <laughs> what are we going to do? Um, because it is a way to connect. It's not the same, but we, again, we're adaptable, we're adapting. Um, and, you know, some of my clients, you know, I've, I'm working towards moving back into the office a little bit, but I, you know, I think we've all kind of gotten used to the routine and there's an element of safety in not having to expose, be exposed you know, in person to whatever, even though there's all the protocols for that. Then there's also the mask. You know, wearing a mask and doing psychotherapy, you don't have the facial. So it's both and. I mean, I think for the most part we're adapting and, and we're all grateful for online. Um, it's certainly not ideal. 
I mean, I, I, I'd love, I just furnished my brand new office and we had our open house ribbon cutting the week before we went into lockdown. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so uh, grief. Yeah. I got a little grief there. I got a little bit of grief. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I maybe be back one day a week, but then I have a feeling that the cases are going to go up again in the fall and it's going to be winter and it may just be online for a little bit longer. Yeah, the the human interaction. I mean, that's why that's why we incarnated. I mean, that's my yeah. understanding. <laughs> yeah, that's we're wired for connection. We're wired for touch. I mean, look mm-hmm. at a baby. Babies don't come into the world saying, "Hey, mom, you got you got a bottle ready for me now. I'm kind of hungry." You know, they like cry and they long to be held and swaddled and comforted. And it's not about any of the verbal stuff that we do. It's about not that you know. You know, I'm hugging my clients, but, you know, and holding my clients, but, you know, to connect with somebody and, you know, shake their hand or give them a hug or see their facial gestures. You know, facial gestures are how we learn to mirror. We see ourselves in other people's faces. And now we all have masks on. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting time, I have to say. All of it. Yeah, I did. I wanted to wrap it up in a nice bow, but I, when you just said that, I, I do have another one last question. I always say that <laughs> three hours later, <laughs> but, but <laughs> a lot of words, so I could talk forever. Oh no, no worries. But I wanted to ask you, um, you know, we're, we were talking about uh, John Piaget and Bruce Lipton and all the others talking about the subconscious, and you, we were talking about human interaction and human touch. And you have people in their twenties, thirties, or forties that I mean, I want to ask you your professional opinion, you can tell that they weren't held as a child. I mean, it hasn't, isn't there research around that? Oh yeah. You know, all the attachment researchers. And again, now we have the brain scans to back up what the attachment theorist, you know, talked about is we don't develop optimally if we're not, because it's all sensory. It's all nonverbal. It's all about feeling physically safe that helps us feel emotionally safe. And, you know, like a baby, you know how they startle? Have you ever seen a baby with a startle response? Um, mm-hmm. And what, is, what does the nurse do? They swaddle the baby in a blanket so the baby feels contained and held. And so, you know, we learned from attachment theory how important that is. But, the, again, back to the old school parenting practices that said don't do that, you know, don't let the baby cry. It strengthens their lungs. I mean, thank goodness we know now that that's not true. But again, we have a lot of cleaning up to do. And that's, that's what we know now. The shame research, which is very similar to the trauma research, is all about that piece right there. So it's a good question because I don't think people really get it because we're so left brain and linear and logical. We don't realize touch and being held and being seen. You know, T. Barry Brazelton did great work on early childhood relationships. And he was one of my favorite pediatricians, and you can see him in videos where he gets face-to-face with the baby, and the baby sticks his tongue out, and he sticks his tongue out, and he starts, you know, the baby makes a sound, and Brazelton makes the same sound, and the baby feels, oh, my gosh, they see me. You know, so mm. now we have these masks that we're wearing. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, there's so much that happens non-verbally in the first three years that is crucial to our mm-hmm. social emotional development. And that's what I want people to really know. That's what I want people to get. Now that's a nice way to stop it. <laughs> so yes. And I'm sure we only scratched the surface. So um, definitely need to have you on it. If, if only to talk about what you, your thoughts were on dark. Right. I know I'm going to go like look that up. You got me. How many seasons is it? Three. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just don't call me back like, what the hell is he thinking? I don't think, I think as a cancer, I think you would totally get, oh, and as a cancer, you'll love this too. So since we thought our by our birthdays, this will be over and it skips a generation in our family. So my twin sister's daughter has twins and we're going to celebrate. We're hoping it'll be over a little bit so we can celebrate in September. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. I hope so too. I hope so too. Yeah. Um, and I probably won't be calling to complain. I'll be calling to thank you for telling me about Dark because now you've really piqued my curiosity. And you know I'm a very curious person, so I'm, I'm looking yes. for it. Yes. 
Well, it sounds like we need to have you back regardless. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. We'll, we'll definitely do that. So with that, you have been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. It was a pleasure speaking with you, Patty, and we'll definitely stay in touch. You too, Hamza. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. Are you still there?